Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 152, Let Sleeping Bears Lie. Last week, I kept my focus down in China proper for major events, but today I'm going back a little on the timeline and shifting my attention to Manchuria, which just seems to be the source of the region's problems for these most recent miniseries. As I covered in the last miniseries, the mineral and agricultural wealth of China's northeast made the region a mighty prize to be won, and it was under the influence of one of the four main factions of warlords I introduced at the start of this series. The one we're talking about today was headed by Zhang Zhulang, the young marshal, the leader of what had been the Feng Tian clique, now renamed the Northeastern Frontier Defense Force, or the NEFDF for short. Don't let the rebrand fool you, it was the same old warlord clique, just now flying the KMT banner, so I'll still be making references to them as the Feng Tian. Zhang was playing a dangerous game by 1928 and found himself surrounded by those who would like nothing more than to topple him from his high perch. Surrounded might be an inaccurate word to describe it too, as many of his problems also stem from his potential rivals already having footholds on his territory, and his desire to rectify that would kick off the conflict at the heart of this episode. Most immediately, there were his subordinates, some of whom rose up through his patronage network and could be trusted, at least to an extent, while others were holdovers from, from when his dad ran the outfit, and they were a lot less reliable. In fact, several would turn on him almost immediately upon his takeover, which I briefly mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Then there were, of course, the Japanese, who had murdered his father after he had refused to take the advice of the Japanese and abandoned northern China to the NRA. The Japanese had been widely embarrassed by the event. It was another instance of Kwantung officers going against the wishes of Tokyo and doing what they wanted. Worse, the Japanese had arranged for three Chinese to take the fall as unknowing patsies at the scene of the train bombing that killed uh, the elder Zheng. They were supposed to be executed on the spot by Japanese soldiers, but one figured out what was happening and managed to escape when the soldiers weren't looking. The man was able to get in touch with the younger Zheng and explain what had happened. Tokyo sent a representative to the funeral to try and insist that the whole thing wasn't their fault and that keeping relations as they had been with his father was still on the table. Zhang didn't dismiss the Japanese, they would almost certainly react violently if he had, but one of his chief objectives was to develop Manchuria away from their influence. That meant railroads running parallel to Japanese ones and outside their control. That meant factories and farming operations set up away from Japanese interests. While Tokyo and the Kwantung army were perturbed by this shift in policy, they couldn't really call him out for improving his own home turf. Plus, they were still making money hand over fist themselves. As you know from the last miniseries, they controlled the Liaodong Peninsula in southern Manchuria, operated the major railroads of the greater region's southern half, and operated a multitude of commercial interests. The Kwantung officers wanted to get more hands-on with Manchuria, but the time wasn't yet ripe in 1928 to 1929. Then there was the newcomer, the Kuomintang. Zheng was, to an extent, an idealist and definitely a committed nationalist. He wanted his homeland to be strong and independent in its relations with foreign powers, and the fact that a strong NRA could maybe keep the Japanese at bay didn't hurt either. And the Nanjing government actively courted Zheng themselves. As their resources were stretched holding central China, it was imperative that the Northeast not fall into chaos or worse, foreign occupation. Zheng welcomed the establishment of KMT branch offices in the region, 
In his eyes, they would act as a counterweight to the various sub-warlords that might not be entirely loyal to him. The KMT staff that established themselves in Manchuria were eager to please, knowing that their presence depended on his good graces. The main issue was that ultimately Zhang and Chiang Kai-shek were still operating at cross-purposes and were only allies of convenience. Chiang wanted a centralized China, and that included Manchuria too. Zhang wanted to continue treating the region as his personal fiefdom, without the central government breathing down his neck. What brought them together were Zhang's Japanese problems and Chiang being occupied with the communists and the other warlords. It certainly wasn't going to be the foundation of a stable friendship, and the deferring interests of the pair would go no small way to making the coming conflict along China's northern borders all the worse. Speaking of which, the last group to know about is the Soviet Union. I haven't really mentioned them since last season's sudden breakup between the KMT and the CPC. But Stalin still had his eyes on China, and saw it as one of the few battlefields that he could still influence in the fight against imperial interests. The CPC might have been driven into their strongholds in the backcountry and underground of the nation's urban areas, but there were other opportunities for mischief. Since the KMT now pitted itself against the communist cause, the Soviets sent aid to Cheng's rivals, especially Feng Yuzheng, whom the Soviets already had a long working relationship. They hoped to destabilize the regime enough that the CPC could get some breathing room. In Manchuria, their primary interest was in the Chinese Eastern Railway, the CER. Whereas the Japanese operated the main southern railways, the Soviets controlled the main line running through the north of Manchuria. The trajectory of the railway started as a spur of the Trans-Siberian Railway at the border-crossing town of Manjuli, which you'll remember as the wretched hive of scum and villainy controlled by the petty Russian warlord Semenov back in the Siberian Intervention episodes. From there, it proceeded southeast through central Manchuria on its way to Vladivostok. The CER had been established by the Tsarist regime, and in the aftermath of the October Revolution, its control passed over to the white faction of the Russian Civil War. The Bolshevik government had originally indicated its intention of returning all rights to the railroad back to the Chinese, but in 1924 cut a deal with Zhang's father to split the leadership of the railway's board of directors, headquartered in the city of Harbin. The Soviets leaned on the elder Zhang to allow them not only half the board of directors spots, but also the position of general manager, which gave them effective control of the CER. Because while the director general of the board was Chinese, it was the general manager that made day-to-day -day management decisions and was answerable to the overall board of directors. If a decision was made not to the liking of the Chinese, then the board would be paralyzed and the GM's decision would stand. If they all agreed, well then, they all agreed. Either way, the Soviets got what they wanted. Attempts by Zhang and previously by his father to rectify the situation were subject to delays from the Soviets. They also ensured that two-thirds of the railway's staff were Russians. The Soviets claimed that this was to keep the railway in good working order, which, on the surface, was important to Soviet interests, as the railway was the best route to Vladivostok. But there was also plenty of very suspicious behavior that made the Soviets look bad. And when I say that, I mean the railway's profits had a suspicious habit of never making it to the bank. The railway obviously made money. Lots of it, in fact. If you wanted to move anything across northern Manchuria, you pretty much had to use the CER. Revenue increased year over year, but the profits mysteriously vanished. It was obviously being whisked away into the coffers of the USSR, which was chronically starved of foreign currency, 
so the CER's income was irresistible. This went on for most of the 20s, and the Chinese public picked up on the exploitive nature of the relationship, and agitation against the USSR became a source of no small embarrassment for the CPC's advocates in China. Zhang himself was getting sick of it, and according to his calculations, he might actually be able to force the Soviets out. Uh, that isn't quite as far-fetched as it might sound to modern listeners. Zheng's army might have been beaten by the NRA in 1928, but it was far from broken. It was still the largest of the autonomous warlord groups and commanded the best equipment, which included imported planes and tanks. And his father's battles with the KMT might not have gone well, but they were also fought very far away from the Manchurian home bases, against a foe that had reached the zenith of its own power. Zheng's ambitions here was to simply seize control of a railway that already ran through his territory. Uh, he wasn't actually invading anything, so the objective wasn't too grandiose. And the potential opposition? Well, that was a big old question mark. The Red Army during the 20s could never have been said to have been in good shape. It was a large fighting force, to be sure, but Manchuria was far from its own main bases in European Russia. The Far East could field only about 30,000 soldiers at the outset of any conflict, a terribly small force given the geographical distances we're working with, and it was very much an infantry army. While the Far Eastern military districts had access to a handful of aircraft and tanks, handfuls don't really count for much when you're fighting heavily outnumbered. And if Zhang made a play for the CER, then the Reds would have to attack into Manchuria against prepared Chinese defenses. The Soviets couldn't afford a World War I-style grind, and that's exactly what Zhang was inclined to give them. There were a couple of factors that Zhang didn't appreciate, though. The first was material. The Red Army was overwhelmingly foot-based infantry, sure, but they had plenty of artillery, and in calibers that the Chinese simply couldn't match. If it came to a slugging match, the Chinese were going to face firepower that they simply had no experience with from the prior warlord conflicts. The other factor was the quality of the Red Army. Most of the great powers of 1929 wrote them off as poorly trained conscripts, which wasn't inaccurate compared to themselves. But life in the Red Army had stabilized considerably since the Civil War, and morale was much higher than most observers assumed. Most of the conscripts started as illiterate peasants, and the army provided them a crash course education, as well as stable housing and food. They were encouraged to show initiative, uh, they were rewarded for good service, and held up as protectors of the revolution. That last bit is important because it meant the soldiers actually had a cause to pledge their service to. They weren't a bunch of random guys pressed into service for a local warlord. They were men fighting for a cause in a world they knew was hostile and that they knew that their homes depended on them for protection. But I'm getting ahead of myself because before the conflict that will be the crux of this episode got going, there would be the usual provocations that would explode into a much larger conflict. The Soviets saw the assassination of the Elder Zhang as an opportunity to extend their influence over northern Manchuria. Nothing like a good power vacuum for a little adventurism. And as the younger Zhang got closer to the Kuomintang, it became an opportunity for a little payback against them, too. In August 1928, a group of Mongols directed by Red Army officers crossed the border from independent Mongolia into western Manchuria with the intent of stirring up tribes on that side of the border. They managed to advance as far as the CER lines in central Manchuria before being driven off by the authorities on the 20th of that month. Young Zhang was not amused at the excursion and had the Soviet vice president of the CER arrested. 
Apparently, they found documents on him detailing the Red Army's involvement with the venture, and the VP would, well, he would die in police custody, which, uh, you know, not suspicious at all. Much more delicate removals were the de deportations of the CER's general counsel and education director back to the USSR. The old flag of the CER, one split between the Soviets and the Feng Tian clique's own flags, was replaced with simply with the Kuomintang flag by the end of the year. Chinese staff that were deemed pro-Soviet were dismissed on January 1st, 1929. Uh, operation of the CER's telephone network was taken over by the 9th, and on the 10th, Zhang demonstrated his seriousness for leading his dad's old outfit by having a pair of disloyal officers executed. A new marshal was in town, and it was a young marshal. But by 1929, the USSR still controlled 24 of the CER's 26 departments, and despite the token dismissals in January, the situation largely remained the same. What was especially frustrating for Zhang was that he found it impossible to get the CER's complete financial reporting delivered to him. That continued to be information the Soviets kept away from the Chinese. Tensions continued to grow, and then Zhang learned that the Soviets were hosting a common turn meeting in their consulate in Harbin on May 27th. A Chinese employee of the consulate had tipped off local police forces. The topic of the meeting was naturally to plot Zhang's downfall. The young marshal opted to take a page out of his father's handbook. Back in 1927, the old marshal had entered the Soviets' embassy in Beijing, revealing all manner of incriminating documents detailing communist plots all across China. The younger Zhang this time around used the excuse that the Soviets were violating a ban on public meetings during the period of observing Sun Yat-sen's burial, which, coincidentally and very conveniently, ran from May 26th to June 1st, so right when the Comintern meeting was set to be held. The raid by the local police didn't go entirely smoothly. The Soviets kept lookouts who saw the cops coming early enough to warn the staff about what was about to happen. When the authorities arrived, all the areas of entry had been locked shut, requiring the cops to batter down the doors. Time was of the essence, as the various chimneys in the building were emitting thick black smoke, a surefire sign that documents were being burned. The Soviets had planned for this eventuality, and the staff was both well-trained and well-equipped with oil canisters for the express purpose of getting rid of paper. Finally, the Chinese burst in and found the consul, one General Melnikov, busy in his office setting documents ablaze. He calmly protested the breach of diplomatic protocol, but multiple truckloads of documents were taken away all the same. Among the fun ones were copies of Japanese and American diplomatic seals and stamps, indicating the Soviets were doing a little bit of forgery. 39 were arrested all told, and that was just the start. Soviet offices across Manchuria, including other consulates, were raided as well. Stalin took the events in stride and kept to a moderate course of action, expelling the chief Chinese ambassador to Moscow, ringing China's Far Eastern consulates inside the USSR with troops of his own to intimidate the staff inside, but not much beyond that. Chiang Kai-shek's reaction was far more bellicose. Already by the first half of 1929, he was facing rebellions all over, and among the documents seized was evidence of aid that was being sent to Feng Yuzheng, who had just been laid low for the first time by Chiang and the NRA. Remember the incident from last week, uh, a little bit before the Central Plains War kicked off, when Chiang bribed many of Feng's subordinates over to his side. This is about in the same time frame. When the Soviets tried to lean on Zhang to knock everything off, he merely directed them to Nanjing, as foreign policy was now being handled from the center. Go talk to those guys. 
Chiang Kai-shek brushed off those protests and concurred with Zhang's idea that maybe they ought to just seize the entire railway. On June 24th, the Chinese ambassador to the United States floated the idea of the CER being seized under the pretense of using the Kellogg-Briand Pact. If you remember from late in last season, that was the treaty that formally banned war as a means of acceptable diplomacy, and both China and the USSR had signed on to it. The Chinese ambassador explained that the, that the treaty encouraged states to exercise their sovereignty within their borders, so a hypothetical seizure would be within international law. And you could even go so far as to say that the international community should be supportive of such a move. The State Department of the U.S. was unable to answer if the Chinese viewpoint was a valid application of the treaty, and it left the Americans with a bad feeling as they immediately understood what the plan was. On July 7th, Chang and Zhang met in Beijing to discuss the issue, with both agreeing that the CER should be seized and that Chang would provide both supplementary funding and ground reinforcements for this purpose. Zhang readily took the money, but advised that the NRA ground troops would only be called in if things went especially poorly. Uh, didn't want to have Chang's men roaming around his turf and all that. What the two didn't appreciate was the different direction each was coming at the issue. Chang was fearful of communist influence and wanted the USSR's support of his rivals to stop, so a muscular response was warranted in his eyes to show strength. Zhang, on the other hand, knew that the Soviets weren't going away in the long term and mostly wanted to assert himself so that he could be regarded as an equal partner in the CER venture. If he could take the whole thing, that would be great, but if that wasn't feasible in the face of staunch Soviet resistance, he was prepared to negotiate. The difference in outlook was going to cause the both of them a lot of grief. On July 10th, Manchurian authorities launched their coup of the CER. Offices and communications were seized, and Chinese were installed in high management positions. Russian employees were retained, and normal operations set to continue, but the railway was quickly in Chinese hands. The Soviets were delivered a set of four demands. One, the Soviets were to abolish the unions of the Russian railway workers, which the Chinese saw as a tool to resist their authority. Two, communist propaganda efforts were to cease. Three, the USSR was to repay its own expenses in silver, as the ruble was internationally worthless. The Soviets had been forcing the CER to accept it as a valid payment all this time, effectively giving them free rides. And finally, four, place the CER's border-crossing operations under the direct control of the Chinese. While the response was waited for, another round of arrests got underway in Harbin, with 100 being taken into custody. The Soviet-ran enterprises in Manchuria, although paling in comparison to the Japanese ones in the southern half of the region, were still extensive, and they were all seized as well. And thanks to the early seizure of the communications network connecting back to the USSR, Moscow was kind of in the dark about what was happening. It took expelled CER officials returning to their side of the border for a picture to start developing, and Stalin did not like it one bit. Because the foreign affairs commissar, Chichirin, was badly ill at the time, he took personal charge of the situation. A demand was shot off to the Chinese to release their prisoners and return the situation to what it had been previously, while at the same time, a mobilization order was sent to the far eastern districts. It was deliberately not done in secret. A friendly, neighborly heads-up was sent to the Japanese that the Red Army might be in Manchuria before long. Travelers from the USSR to Harbin reported troop deployments in the major railway hubs. Japanese observers were impressed and more than a little concerned with how fast the Red Army was getting its forces together. 
On the 17th of July, 1929, troops were deployed to the areas of the border that had viable crossing points. Uh, given that the frontier was some 1,900 miles long, that might seem like an impossible task for the Red Army's first responders. But there were circumstances that made their jobs easier. The first was that while the frontier was huge, it was marked out for all but 350 miles of its length by major rivers, which certainly weren't insurmountable, even, especially when they froze in the winter, but there weren't a lot of roads in that part of the world either. No roads, but plenty of thick forests, hills, and mountains, all of which limited troop deployments. For both sides, significant numbers of troops crossing the frontier would have to be channeled through narrow points on the map. Finally, the OGPU, the successor to the Cheka and the predecessor to the NKVD as the USSR's secret police, sprang into action. They set up patrols at the border crossings and interdicted river traffic running between the two countries. 1,100 Chinese boatmen were arrested in just a few weeks, and woe to the white Russians caught on the rivers. Manchuria played host to some 115,000 Russians, many of them leftovers from the Civil War who never reconciled with the new government. And for many, they were part of the white faction, if only insofar as they wanted to get away from the Reds. Which isn't to say that old partisans were absent, they were still well represented in the population. Zhang himself had a battalion of them serving as mercenaries, after all. Regardless of background, they had nowhere to really go, so they stayed on, creating a fun situation, especially in Harbin. Uh, the city was a magnet for white exiles and red CR employees, so the two kinds of Russians had to rub shoulders in the city. As you would expect, the Soviets made it their business to identify and keep tabs on as many of them as possible. For those working out on the frontiers, they were the first to be snatched up by the Soviets. And they wouldn't be the last. Meanwhile, Zhang returned to his capital of Mukden, modern-day Shenyang, and prepared for war. Tens of thousands of troops were rushed to the border areas, especially around the Manjuli border area, which lacked a river crossing and where the terrain allowed large numbers of troops to attack. Trains rolled in and out of the border areas day and night with fresh troops. If the Russians had demonstrated capability in mobilizing quickly, Zhang himself was not outdone. Light hostilities commenced almost immediately. The Red Army began light artillery attacks in the vicinity of Manjuli, prompting thousands of civilians to flee the city. A pair of Soviet gunboats on the Amur River had a firefight with Chinese troops on the shoreline. Nothing major, but the shooting had indeed started. On the diplomatic front, the Chinese found themselves unexpectedly isolated. They had thought that taking control of the CER would be a slam dunk. It was on their territory, and the losers would be the communists. Nobody liked them! But they didn't reckon with Western indifference to Chinese sovereignty. The British point-blank blew them off, not wanting to provoke the USSR, while the primary American interest was in preserving the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Given that the Americans celebrated that treaty's effective start date on July 25th, right as the shooting parts of the crisis were getting underway, there was no small anxiety to achieve a de-escalation. Not out of any concern for China, mind you, but just to not look like complete morons for endorsing their treaty. The Japanese, oddly enough, would be helpful in this case, as this was still 1929 and internationalism was still the order of the day there. Tokyo wanted Manchuria to stay calm, the existing system of influence left intact, and ensure the Russians didn't get too much of an upper hand. Stalin, though, refused negotiations, until on July 29th, Zheng proactively started offering concessions, and talks between the two parties got underway in Manjuli. The Manchurians were optimistic about striking a deal, as their main focus was simply to bring the CER's management closer to their control. They 
badly miscalculated the stomach of the Russians for a fight, though, and talks broke down on August 2nd. The Soviets demanded a permanent Red Army presence in Manchuria, as well as a removal of all white Russians from the railway zone. When word of the demands got out, Chang back in Nanjing rejected the terms by promising to meet the Russians with force if need be, which was easy for him to say when Zhang was on the front lines. And there's a distinct chance that that might have been Stalin's plan all along, lure Chang into putting a resentful Zhang into a no-win situation. The talks gave the Red Army additional time to build up its forces, increasing from 30,000 troops on the front to 100,000, and raising the aircraft available from 50 to 160. Small potatoes compared to the wars to come, but big enough for a border war here. On August 6th, Russians already in Manchuria began sabotaging the CER railways, damaging both trains and railroads, causing Zhang to declare martial law in the CER zone. More than the damage it actually caused, the sabotage produced an atmosphere of acute paranoia in Harbin and Mukden. On August 11th, the Red Army began raids on the border crossing areas. And over the next two weeks, the clashes turned deadly, with dozens on both sides killed and wounded across the long frontier. On the 19th, Chang addressed the country by laying out the case for the recovery of the railway, and how the USSR was just as imperialist as the West, and worse, had posed once as a false friend. By and large, the August skirmishes saw the Chinese get the better of it, as while the Russians were able to overrun Chinese defenses in some sectors, they never attacked with enough strength and often seemed unprepared when attacking, which, uh, that's going to be something that comes up again. The Red Army, uh, not being prepared for the fight ahead of them, screwing up the start, but then regrouping later. And it did give the Soviet commander of the operation, General Blucher, an opportunity to identify underperforming officers and replace them. Which, hey, it's Blucher. You might remember him from last season. He was the leading military advisor that was sent out to help the KMT plan and execute the Northern Expedition. He was deported after the break with the CPC, but was now getting to put his experience in China to use again. Meanwhile, over in Mukden, Zheng's officers had grown bullish over their chances in facing the Red Army. Their troops had more than held their own in the border skirmishes, and more troops were still being called in. In addition, Chang increased the number of troops he had on standby to send north if need be. It looked to them that there was a real opportunity to not just seize the railway, but also score some international prestige. Zhang remained apprehensive, but was again trapped, this time by what was apparently military success. He couldn't, you know, back down when he was winning, after all. Moreover, the removal of the CER as a conduit to Vladivostok was playing hell with the economy of the Soviet Far East. Vladivostok was the port of the region, and the CER was the primary artery connecting it with the Siberian interior. Sure, the Trans-Siberian continued along past where it met the CER on the way to Vladivostok, but that was a far longer, far less efficient trip along a railway line that was also less developed. The situation in 1929 in the USSR was already dicey, economically speaking, and Chang thought he had room to negotiate a resolution that would make him look like a winner while keeping the Soviets content. So, talks started again in Berlin in early September, and the Chinese offered to back off on a total seizure in exchange for modest concessions on staffing. Again, the talks were likely a ruse all along, as while the international press was reporting that a deal had effectively been struck on September 3rd, in reality, the Soviets restated their harsh demands from month previous. This threw both Chang and Zhang into confusion, as neither could understand what Stalin was playing at. Why agree to the talks and then pull out the rug from under them? 
What neither understood was that Stalin didn't want a compromise. He wanted a show of force to demonstrate his superiority. Meanwhile, the Red Army's raids, while fewer in number than in August, were growing in size and complexity. Treating the conflict as a large-scale war game was starting to pay off as the Army's proficiency grew with experience. In one notable instance on September 8th, almost 40 bombers appeared over the border town of Suifany, 80 miles northwest of Vladivostok. The bombers focused on the railways, wrecking the facilities and badly damaging the civilian housing adjacent to it, kill killing nearly 120. People fled the city, and from that point on, railway deliveries to the front had to be stopped and transported from well behind the line. In early October, a major Soviet raid breached three Chinese trench lines and left hundreds dead on both sides. It looked like the raids would continue to be the order of the day until events down south changed the situation. Chiang had managed to deal with the Guangxi clique in Feng Yuzhang earlier in the year with little difficulty, but the uprisings continued, and in early October, Yan Zhishan organized his coalition with Feng and the Guangxi leaders against Chiang. This was a threat that couldn't be ignored, and all of a sudden, those NRA troops stationed in northern China were diverted elsewhere. Zhang was suddenly on his own. By October 12, 1929, Blucher was ready to start his real deal offensives. The first order of business was to neutralize the Chinese Sungari River Flotilla. Both the Chinese and Soviets maintained a small fleet of gunboats on the Amur River, and the Sungari Flotilla was tasked with patrolling its namesake tributary of the Amur that flowed all the way into central Manchuria. The Chinese ships were operating out of the town of Tungcheng, another border town where the Sungari and Amur rivers met. In addition to forcing a naval engagement, Blucher was intent on taking the town, which did not appear to be an easy task. The Chinese there erected trenches and pillboxes, and the Soviets would have to cross the river without pontoon bridges. The terrain was swampy and covered in small streams, and was just a miserable place, really. Oh, and this is October in the Far East, so it's really cold, too. The Chinese flotilla could count on four gunboats, seven patrol boats, and a barge that had a pair of 120mm guns installed. The Soviets would deploy against them four river monitors, a monitor being a type of craft with next to nothing on its top deck besides the gun batteries, uh, the primary armament of which were 420mm guns. Except for the Russian flagship, the Sverdlov, which boasted 450mm guns, which in the open ocean were pea shooters, fit only for destroyers and maybe light cruisers. But on a river, these were the biggest guns you'd come across and would be devastating against the lightly armored craft in use. At 5.30 a.m., the Russians began shelling the Chinese positions while minesweepers cleared the approaches to Tungjiang. River barges were on hand to ferry troops across once the way was clear. At 6 a.m., the Soviet flotilla reached the anchored Chinese ships and began engaging at point-blank range. Almost immediately, two of the smaller Chinese patrol boats were sunk and a gunboat was put out of action. The Chinese river barge was able to bring its larger guns to bear, though, and scored one of those lucky hits on the Soviet flagship that always seemed to happen in wartime. A shot from the barge managed to knock out the Sverdlov's power, leaving it dead in the water. A second monitor, the Red East, maneuvered in to cover the flagship and sank another patrol boat. The Chinese were having trouble responding because the monitors traveled low in the water, presenting targets almost too low to actually engage with. The Chinese would lose four patrol boats, two gunboats, and their cannon barge before retreating, leaving two Soviet monitors critically damaged but still floating. This opened the way at 6.30 a.m. for the troops to begin landing three and a half miles away from the town. 
Under the cover of naval and air bombardments, the Russians picked apart the defenders over the next six hours. In addition to the artillery coming from across the river, it was all too much for the Chinese, and their defenses broke. They left behind a thousand dead and wounded and abandoned the city. This time, the Russians did not withdraw back across the river. Among the captured material was eight barges worth of food, including two million pounds of flour, which was greatly appreciated by a Far East experiencing food shortages. The success was followed up with an assault on Giamusi, a town about 30 miles downriver on the Sungari. If that city fell, then there wasn't much stopping gunships from just sailing upriver to Harbin and shelling it. The Chinese prepared their defenses with the expectations for a land advance. The Red Army simply loaded up on the barges and prepared for another water landing. The remnants of the Sungari flotilla were also counted among the defenses. On October 30th, the strike force reached Giamusi, and a Russian seaplane at the start sunk the Chinese flagship. Minesweepers again cleared the way under machine gun fire from the shore, and troops landed at, landed at 11 a.m. Once again, naval and air power disrupted the Chinese defenses, throwing everything on their side into confusion as defenders failed to regroup after the Soviets took the first defensive positions. By day's end, the Chinese were in flight westwards. The Red Army spent a few days again gathering what they could load up and withdrew. The Chinese river defenses definitively neutralized. Over in Manjuli, a large cavalry raid commanded by Konstantin Rokossovsky succeeded in overrunning a local Chinese artillery position, killing 80 defenders and capturing a battery of artillery and mortars. A minor battle, but I bring it up here because Rokossovsky was going to go on to become a top five Red Army commander in World War II. The new battles brought some international hope of a settlement, as Zheng was starting to indicate that he might be willing to cave to Stalin's demands. Zheng, though, was still trapped as Stalin was now determined to hurt Chang and the Nanjing government through him. On November 17th, the Red Army struck again, this time against the border town of Mishan, about 70 miles north of Suifene. The objective was to wreck the local coal mines, putting a little bit of economic pressure on Zheng. A single division divided into three columns fanned out across the border, marching over roadless terrain. Mishan was held by a brigade of cavalry that, by the end of the day, found itself encircled. The Chinese were forced to mount their horses and ride as hard as they could to the west through machine gun and artillery fire just to escape. They tried to counterattack the Russians the next day, but lacking heavy weapons of their own, were forced to withdraw, leaving behind 1,500 dead. The decisive battle, though, was occurring at the, around the same time at Manjuli, which is effectively the northern front of this entire campaign. Rokossovsky's cavalry, including now a division of Buryat and Mongol horsemen, crossed the border on the night of the 16th in the cold and the dark. The objective was to have the cavalry bypass the Chinese defenses and move in from behind to cut them off from the railway to Harbin, and then, once isolated, have the infantry move in and crush them. Some of the Chinese tried to evacuate via the railway, but the Soviet horsemen were carrying with them light artillery dragged along by their horses. The cannons knocked out the train, and the soldiers on board quickly surrendered. The Chinese cavalry rode out to meet the Russians, and violent saber battles ensued on the frozen ground of northwest Manchuria. While the Reds took heavy losses, losing hundreds of their own riders, the Chinese were beaten back and the encirclement held. The Chinese defenders were quickly isolated into two groups, with a smaller force west of Manjuli cut off from the main group. The attack on the smaller group of defenders marked the combat debut of the Soviet tank corps as around a dozen T-18 tanks attacked the Chinese positions. It was not an auspicious start, as two of the tanks got lost, and the rest failed to force a breakthrough. 
The T-18s were the first tanks developed by the USSR and were basically rip-offs of the French FT-17s from World War I, so they weren't exactly monsters on the battlefield by this point, although the Chinese didn't have much themselves to counter them. The infantry didn't fare much better, failing to storm the Chinese trenches and pillboxes and absorbing hundreds in losses. By the end of the 17th, the Soviets considered falling back, on account of an impending snowstorm. Temperatures had peaked at a balmy 12 degrees Fahrenheit and were projected to hit negative 4 very shortly. Even Russians thought twice about fighting in such conditions. But Blücher wanted a win, and not only ordered the troops to remain, but to launch night attacks. This turned out to be the trick, as the Chinese lines started buckling under the cover of darkness, the mixture of exhaustion, cold, and sheer confusion getting to the defenders. By the morning of the 18th, their positions were collapsing, and a group of soldiers tried to break out and head east. The Buryat Mongols rode to intercept them, removing their coats in the terrible cold to free their saber arms. Rokosovsky initially protested the move as unnecessary and dangerous, but was suitably impressed after 400 Chinese soldiers were run down in the open ground. Overall, 2,000 Chinese were killed and 9,000 captured in three days of fighting. The next objective would be the town of Halumbir, 100 miles to the east along the Sea Yar. After Manjuli fell, panic gripped that city and the civilian population fled en masse. Zhang had sent one of his top subordinates, General Hu Yukun, into the area with Hu's personal army months earlier, but... Who had never expected to be on the front lines, and so had made no preparations for being attacked. Hearing reports that the Red Cavalry were bearing down on him, who ordered his entire force to flee on November 23rd. The retreat turned into a rout without even an appearance from the Soviets. In the mad dash to flee, order broke down, and the soldiers assigned to the rear guard ran rampant through the city. The local police force vanished, and the power stations were destroyed, plunging the town into darkness while hundreds of buildings were burned down. Two days later, the Red Army arrived, and order was restored. The Soviets halted their advance, although an air raid on the 28th on rail stations to the east panicked whose soldiers into deserting entirely. Tens of thousands of troops fled deeper into Manchuria's interior, and an additional army had to be deployed just to round them up. The situation had firmly gotten away from Zhang. Realizing that the Soviets could march on Harbin whenever they wanted, he was ready to capitulate to their demands. Chang might have been loath to do so, but wasn't in a position to intervene, his own army being tied down against Yan's northern coalition, as both of those factions were gearing up for what became the Central Plains War the next year. Stalin, for his part, considered his point to have been made, and was ready to take the win and go home. The CER was placed back under Soviet control, and their dominance of the railways was acknowledged. Zhang had suffered a severe defeat, and Chang and the Kuomintang government were badly embarrassed. An attempt to demonstrate that China was ready to stand for itself had backfired completely. On the other side of the coin, the USSR and the Red Army managed to snag a bit of prestige from the affair. Their army had been written off as a bloated husk, but in this case it performed complex operations in a distant theater against a numerically superior opponent. The Japanese noted that the USSR had gained in strength, while Zhang was weaker than they had previously assumed. Information that would later influence the Kwantung army's later decision to invade Manchuria. Uh, speaking of which, next week, we'll be returning to Chang and China proper in the aftermath of the Central Plains War, which is appropriate following this episode, as in his moment of triumph, Chang will have to face the crisis of Japan's Manchurian invasion. 
which would turn his entire plan for China on its head and show that maybe in this case he should have just leaned on Zhang to play it cooler in his dealings. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.